Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists, and food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good sizzling summer weekend to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. You can celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. And on this show every Sunday, you'll hear from chefs and artisans, farmers, authors, and travel experts, sommeliers, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything scrumptious. It is my goal to feed your soul, so stay tuned, please, for this hour of delicious conversation, and know that I'm always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. You can also hear radio podcasts of shows you might have missed on iTunes, FeedBurner, and Blueberry. Just search Chef Jamie Gwen. So the topic for the kickoff of today's show is what I would consider my most favorite summer produce of all the bounty, because I am all about sweet summer corn. Summer corn, what a lovely thing, right? You can grill it, uh, or you could steam it, or you could eat it off the cob. You just don't want to miss out on the sweet summer crop. And nothing says summer quite like corn on the cob, maybe because of the veggies' climatic roots. Scientists actually believe that the people of central Mexico developed corn from a wild grass at least 7,000 years ago. It's also known as maize, and it eventually spread north to the southwestern U.S. and then south to Peru. And we know Columbus acquired corn from Indians in America, brought it back to Spain. It spread to Western Europe and in time to the rest of the world. And now corn is grown on every continent except Antarctica. Now, what food is more synonymous with summer than freshly picked corn on the cob? I love the host of different varieties, by the way, that are available today. It's not just yellow or even white corn anymore, but you can find red and pink and black and even purple, and not the dried kind, but the completely edible ones. And just for fun, before you bite into that cob at your next barbecue, take a closer look. Did you know that the average ear has 800 kernels arranged in 16 rows with one strand of silk for each kernel? Amazing, right? But there are so many alternatives to eating it just straight from the cob. Let's start with, let's say, freshly made cream corn. I love cream corn. It's a steakhouse original, right? But you can sort of spin it for summer by throwing some fresh corn kernels into a good hot pan with some unsalted butter, preferably that you let brown just a little bit for that beautiful hazelnut, nutty, lovely flavor. And then after a while, you add some cream and you season it and you heat it and you eat it. And if you're like me, then you eat it over the pot with a spoon until it's gone. (laughs) Now, you can easily take the kernels off the cobs where then you don't have to, you know, bother with the toothpick after the barbecue. And my best tip is to stand the corn on the cob upright in a bowl and then use a paring knife to cut down along the kernels as close to the cob as you can. And that actually saves the kernels from, you know, flying everywhere off your board. You can also line a cutting board with a kitchen towel and cut the kernels off. And the chef's tip 
there is that the towel acts as a buffer to keep the kernels from flying around. And then for complete yield, after you've removed the kernels from the cob, you use the back of your chef knife to scrape the corn cobs of the corn milk, as it's called. That's the milky liquid that you extract from the cobs, and it is a delicious addition to corn soup or chowder. Now, waste not, want not. You can even utilize the cobs themselves. Once you've cut the kernels and scraped the corn milk, you can boil the cobs, like throw them into a soup, or if you're making stock for added flavor, And just in, say, 10 minutes, the cobs cooked in water give you that sort of corn essence. And it's a great substitute for plain water next time you're making, you know, a, a summer soup or cooking down a sauce. You just get that essence of sweet, lovely corn. It's like homemade corn stock, really. And then once you have the kernels, what do you make of those? Well, how about a corn and avocado salsa for grilled salmon? Ooh. Or a tomato and corn salsa for dipping chips into. You could even shortcut it, by the way, and throw those kernels into a jar of your favorite salsa and call it your own. Now, scallops, shrimp, crab, lobster, they all pair well with corn, too, uh, for summer salads or even for clam bakes. I love a corn soup, by the way as I mentioned, but I love a corn soup cold alongside an arugula salad as a meatless Monday vegetarian summer meal. Now, don't forget, and this is really important, coconut and corn go really well together. It's a match made in heaven, a perfect pairing really. So next time you want to wow your friends and family, be a culinary hero, make a corn and coconut milk soup. And then serve it in a little espresso cup or in a shot glass at your next backyard barbecue and you will totally upscale the corn movement. But most of all, I love grilling corn the best. My secret, by the way, which I know so many great cooks know, is a coating of mayonnaise directly on the kernels on the cob if you're going to throw it right on the grill after you've cleaned it of its husk and its silk. The mayonnaise actually locks in the moisture and it dissipates from the grill, but you'll be amazed how delicious the corn is. Don't knock it till you try it. Or you can grill corn in the husk where it actually steams itself and then you get the bonus of imparting smoky flavor from the grill and then you get a neat built-in handle when you fold back the husk to reveal the steamed corn within. And then I like to peel the husk back if I'm grilling the cobs that way, remove any silk and then add like a compound butter that you've made, a seasoned garlic butter or a lime cilantro butter. And then you don't have to roll the cob in butter after you've cooked it. And then, of course, there are recipes galore for the summer season to savor the bounty and capture the sweet essence of fresh corn at its peak. You could make corn cakes or maple chipotle corn. Oh, there's a whole bevy of recipes posted at chefjamie.com that, if I may say myself, are truly delectable. So I hope you will check them out. And that is my homage to corn for this Sunday. Moving on to food news. Here's some news you can use. And this is actually really an important mention. No matter how many times we read the startling statistics on food waste in America, you've heard about it on this show. We are all responsible for it and we experience it every day. It just doesn't have the impact that it should. So you should watch 
the Canadian food documentary, Just Eat It. I watched it uh, just this past week. The documentary has won numerous awards. It's one of the most startling portrayals of food waste in today's society. It was created by Grant Baldwin and Jen Rustemeyer. The film follows the both of them as they attempt to eat only food that is going to be thrown out for the entire duration of six months. And it's interspersed with interviews from food waste experts and farmers who really explain the extent of the issue. And I really think it's the education we all need to start making a change in the way that we handle our food and how we can prevent waste. It is serious food for thought, and that is worthy of food news. It's the Canadian food documentary called Just Eat It, and I hope that you will check it out. And I hope that you will certainly not touch your dial, but stay tuned because we have a lot more delicious conversation coming up in your radio. The best-selling author of Real Food, Fake Food, his name is Larry Olmsted, and his book is All a Buzz, is going to tell you what you don't know about what you're eating. So he's coming up next. Don't touch your dial. We'll also better the planet before the end of the hour by dishing with the founder of the Ecology Center, Evan Marks, and we're traveling to Burgundy for an educational wine tasting you won't want to miss. Don't touch your dial. There's more fabulous food in your radio right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen, don't go away. Bringing you food news that you can use every Sunday. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. So is your coffee counterfeit or your olive oil really extra virgin? You know, we try to be mindful about what we eat, but according to food and travel writer Larry Olmsted, too often the foods that we're buying to nourish ourselves and our families are not exactly exactly or even actually what we think they are. Larry writes the Great American Bites column for USA Today and is the food and travel columnist for Forbes.com, an award-winning writer, in fact. He is also the author of the new book called Real Food, Fake Food, which is getting a ton of press. In the book, he details the hidden secrets behind the unregulated food industry, revealing some shocking deception and the price that we're paying for it. And I am very thrilled that he is here to dish all about it. Congratulations on the book, Larry. It's really an incredible read. Thank you very much. I'm glad you liked it. As did my husband. And you know, we're a a food and wine couple, but we'll get to that in a moment. Could you define fake food, please? I thought in watching interviews of yours of late about the book that that was a really good place to start because your definition of fake food might be different from uh, those of us food enthusiasts or what we know. Right. I mean, it is a bit of a sliding scale, but I I like to use the example of of a lobster. If you buy a North Atlantic lobster or a Maine lobster, you know what it looks like. It's in a shell. You really cannot be fooled. There's nothing else they can give you that looks like it. Lobster is wild-caught, so it's not farm-raised. You don't have to worry about drugs or weird diet it's had. It's, it's just lobster. But then once you go a little bit beyond that, you order lobster ravioli, ravioli or bisque or lobster salad or a variety of dishes that should contain lobster, 
they may or may not. And a recent Inside Edition study found that about a third of the time, the restaurants actually did not use lobster in the lobster dishes. <laughs> so to me, lobster is real food. Lobster ravioli without lobster is fake food. But there's a variety of products in between, like grass-fed beef that is beef but not grass-fed. So it, it, it's not <laughs> cut or dried. No, it isn't. But you've shined a, a, an incredible light on what we need to be aware of, what we're paying for, what's important to be knowledgeable of. And you've made us think. When it comes to food fraud, there's a lot of it out there, and you talk about it in the book. I read it cover to cover. But it is no doubt a regulation issue and a labeling issue, really, right? Absolutely. And, um, you know, one of the things is that, um, you know, restaurants have, are proven, proving to be a little bit more complicit in this than even I thought. And, you know, that is mostly at the state and local level, whereas something like how your meat is labeled is regulated by government, uh, federal agencies. So there's, there's a lot of layers to, to even that part of it. You come down um, very hard on Kobe which I thought was really interesting to read about. Um, uh, you, you come down pretty hard on fish, too, which I'd like to get to. Um, but when you order a Kobe steak, is there a way to know it's the actual Japanese-raised Kobe beef? Uh, well, yes, because there's only nine restaurants in the United States that are serving. And, and actually, it's been growing fast. Because when I started this, it was three and then five oh, wow. and then eight. One was added about two weeks ago. Huh. <laughs> but um, it's up to nine um, but the Kobe Beef Distribution Council from Japan has a list of all of its vendors worldwide because there's so little of the real thing made that you basically need a license to buy it. Um, and so there's nine places in the U.S. And you probably know if you go to one of those because they're really highly specialized. And any place else you see Kobe beef on the menu, Kobe, you're being lied to. And especially if it's like Kobe Slide or Kobe Burger, I mean, one of the things I mentioned is that all Japanese beef of any kind, any Wagyu of any kind, doesn't have to be Kobe, can only be imported um, in boneless cuts. So if you see like a, a you know, Wagyu ribeye, that's an in, or a rib steak or a T-bone, something like that, it's an instant red flag. Right. So if it has a bone and it's labeled Wagyu or even Kobe, you know that it's fake food. Well, yeah, you certainly know it's not from Japan. I mean, we do have some U.S. producers of Wagyu breed cattle here domestically that do a pretty good job, but the problem is it, it's almost completely unregulated. So when you see it, unless you know the farmer, you have no idea what it is. It could be 100% Japanese genetics. It could be almost no Japanese genetics or a lot of things in between. Amazing. Okay, could we talk about the sushi experience for just a moment, please, sure. Larry? Because you and I used to be friends. <laughs> but when the sushi experience conversation in Real Food Fake Food came about, I was gravely disappointed. Well, I mean, the seafood industry <laughs> or sector is, is, is probably the most prevalently fraudulent. Yes. And that's not because, you know, seafood people are bad or anything. It's because no. when, you know, you go to buy chicken, you don't really think in terms of breeds or, you know, it's chicken. You might want organic or you might want, um, you know, antibiotic-free, but you think it, it's chicken. Where seafood, you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of different species. Right. Um, so there's just a lot more opportunity uh, for fraud. But sushi restaurants in studies have performed the worst. And, you know, I've given this a lot of thought because you're not the first person. Every time I do a signing, people say, you ruined sushi for me. That's the number one uh, response. And I love sushi. But sushi 
is a relatively special food. You know, if you lived in Japan, you wouldn't have this expectation that you're going to eat it five times a week or pick it up, you know, uh, at, at a convenience store for lunch. Right. So, and it, it's, it's sort of, a, as a society, we've dumbed it down, which then, you know, forces the industry in a way to, you know, have a cheaper commodity product. I mean, the sushi that we eat, that most of us eat, is the equivalent of a fast food hamburger. Yet the people who, you know, eat it would never, you know, might never go to McDonald's or Burger King, not there's anything wrong with those places, you know, but they look down on that, but feel perfectly fine about buying a plastic box of sushi at the supermarket. So I think if, you know, you went back to the model of, you know, you went to a, a restaurant that specialized in sushi and it was a bit more of a treat, we'd all be better off. No doubt there's the lesson there. Um, it's not really Red Snapper as long as we're talking fish uh, per your book as well. Uh, how do we go to Florida and actually get grouper? What, what's your best tip for making sure that we fight the food fraud, especially when it comes to fish and seafood? Well, the nice thing about, uh, and this doesn't work for everything, but it does work for fish and seafood, is if you can buy it or even see it whole, you're a lot better off. Right. I mean, if you know what a red snapper mm-hmm. looks like, and you buy a red snapper or go to a restaurant, you know, you see a lot of them in, in coastal areas where they, you know, you pick a whole fish and they grill it, and then you've controlled the process. But the problem is uh, almost all of us would buy that red snapper um, already filleted, and I, mean, I just spoke to um, you know, one of the nation's leading seafood distributors who told me he could take pretty much any three fillets of white fish and put them next to each other. It could be tilapia, it could be grouper, it could be red snapper, and almost nobody can tell them the apart. Difference. Red snapper and grouper happen to be among the most expensive fish you could buy, and there's a lot of cheaper fish they can swap for that. And that that's really, it's, it's not, it's, red snapper is victimized because it's simple economics. Really fascinating. Um, my husband is in the wine industry, Larry. Uh, he was um, dumbfounded reading your book. I think you might have talked about some of his friends, um, but I thought it was really interesting to read about the fraud and the fact that it has moved past or beyond the food industry and that it's really prevalent in the wine business as well. Well, as I, you know, as I said at the beginning, you know, there's kind of different different types of fakes, and one of the categories that I define um, in my own terms is, is this geographic indications, which are foods that are supposed to come from a particular place, like Kobe beef, or in the wine business, Champagne, Burgundy, Chianti, um, Chablis, sure. Port Cherry. There's lots of them, but. The U.S., for the most part, does not recognize these kind of uh, place-based trademarks. So it is completely legal for a producer in upstate New York to make burgundy. I call it fake because real burgundy, which is legally protected in almost all of the world, has a very precise definition and level of quality. You know mm-hmm. if you buy a bottle of red burgundy from France that it's 100% Pinot Noir that, and that grapes, every, everything that goes into the production is regulated for quality. So there's sort of a base level, whereas burgundy here is meaningless. They can use any kind of grapes, any kind of production from anywhere, but call it the same thing. And the only reason they call it that is to trade on the value of the original. Mm-hmm. So that's a whole category, and it includes champagne, which surprises a lot of people. Um, You can always uh, check out Larry's website to learn more about real food, fake food. It's realfoodfakefood.com because you should know what you're eating and what you can do about it. From 
award-winning columnist and writer, the author of the new book release called Real Food, Fake Food. He is Larry Olmsted, and he's keeping you informed so that you can eat better and live better. It is a fascinating read. I think it will make you buy differently, uh, eat differently, think differently. And in this ever-growing world of food, we all need to be mindful. So check it out on Amazon, uh, at a bookstore near you from an independent, learn more, realfoodfakefood.com. Larry, a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time and for sharing your passion. Thanks for having me. As the delicious conversation continues, we'll be right back. Grab your glass and let us toast you. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We're catching up with my friend, Vintner John Turlato today, and I am delighted that he's back to share his passion and his family legacy. Turlato Wines has a global portfolio, and John is a leading expert on the state of the wine world, having his finger on the pulse of winemaking with four generations of experience and history behind the Turlato empire. He penned an article for Clever Root just recently, where he waxed poetic on the history of wine in Burgundy, France. And I thought it was so well written that I had to share it. So John Turlato is here, and I am so glad to welcome you back. Hi, John. Hi, Jamie. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. And you? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Yes, of course. Congratulations. The article is very well written, but what I loved most about it is that I thought it really shined a beautiful light on the fact that your passion and your family history is very deeply rooted in the fact that you are so dedicated to the craft that it's not a it's not a, an afterthought but more so you're involved in the process. You're committed to the process. The passion really came through. Well, thank you. You know, uh, I'm very, very fortunate. You know, our family's been in the wine business for many years Long and many time. different levels. Yes. And, uh, my passion is really in the vineyards and farming and making great wines. And I think there's so many examples mm-hmm. of families around the world that are that are farming amazing grapes and, and then crafting uh, incredible wines, that there's just something to be learned from everybody. And Burgundy was was certainly one of those places that, that shined a light for me on, on, on the concept of making great wines. Oh, for sure. Okay, let's talk Burgundy. Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, the grapes of choice. The perfect parallel to your Samford winery in Santa Barbara, right? Indeed. And in fact, when we purchased Samford winery, that that's what led me to uh, Burgundy, because if you're going to reference, you know, the great Chardonnays and Pinot Noirs of the world, sure. my view was that Burgundy was certainly one of those reference points, if not the reference point. Okay, so give us a bit of history on grape growing and winemaking in Burgundy, if you would. So, look, at, here's what I learned in Burgundy. It's, it became very obvious to me, and it was also a highlight of, of, of what I had learned from other winemaking families in other grape growing regions. Hmm. 
you know, great wines come from a vineyard. They, they represent a place. They're expressions of a place. And, and there's no formulas or recipes for making great wine. The great wines of the world come from a specific vineyard, and the winemaking winemaker or winemaking family deal with the idiosyncrasies of that vineyard on a vintage-by-vintage basis, and there are no formulas. It's not something that I could take a formula from Burgundy and apply it to uh, Santa Barbara. It's how are you dealing with the vineyards that you happen to have in front of you, and what are they giving you in that particular vintage, and how will you adjust your decision-making to accommodate what the vineyard has provided? That was so clear to me uh, in, in when I met all of these Burgundian winemakers and started to talk to them about how they deal with their vineyards and how they make their wines. So it's very site-specific, no formulas, no recipes, and the wines are a unique expression of a specific vineyard or block. And do you find that with each vintage, the expression comes through with continuity, or do you find that that's the beauty and the genius and the dedication of the winemaker to be able to ebb and flow with the seasons, the climate, that particular year's harvest to create something new and unique? I I know it's all deeply rooted and steeped in the complexity of the of the varietal itself, but it really came through to me that there's a, a lot of science and a lot of passion, equal parts that go into it. I know, you know, from, uh, from grape to bottle, <laughs> having experienced crush before what it takes. I think we should pay far more than we do, John, for a bottle of wine. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the good news is we don't, but yes, I, I agree with you. It, it actually is uh, vintage specific and, and, okay. and as a group, we deal with the idiosyncrasies that mother nature has provided to us or handed us in that year. Mm-hmm. And we do make adjustments in our, in our winemaking techniques, in our barrel regimen, in our punch downs, in our canopy management, we make adjustments along the way to accommodate the twists and turns that Mother Nature is, is giving us in order to extract from that vineyard the best quality fruit that we could extract from that vineyard in, in those circumstances in that year. So we, we, we do make wines that are idiosyncratic relative to the vintage, but what we don't want to make is completely new and different and wide, widely variable expressions right. of a specific vineyard because that will be very confusing for people. Hmm. I, I think that's why we grasp onto a particular family, a, a winery, a varietal, even as we deduce it down, because we expect that continuity. We want the style of Pinot Noir that we know and love to taste the same. That's why we buy from a brand. That's why we're loyal to a family name. And that immense attention to detail and the value that you speak about in the article is, I think, a true testament to Burgundy, to the the legacy winemakers, to the Turlato family, because to achieve that goal is a, is a very uh, high hope, really. No, no question. And there's, there's really two important elements. One is, you know, the family that's making the wine and their vision for what they can and want to do with their vineyards. And then the vineyard itself, you know, I refer to this as wines that are expressions of a place Hmm. versus wines that are engineered to a specific flavor profile. Uh, There's no right and wrong, but I could tell you that as a family, our view is we own these amazing vineyards in, you know, Pickett, uh, Santa Barbara County. And our responsibility is to make sure and ensure 
that the wines that are coming from that vineyard are expressions of the varietal first, so right. really truly tastes like Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. And number two, they're expressions of the place as opposed to some idea that we have in our head about what Chardonnay or what Pinot Noir should taste like. Mm -hmm. So we try not to engineer the wines. Our job is to stay out of the way, Hmm. what I refer to as a very non-interventionist approach to winemaking. Let the vineyard show for itself. Let the varietal show for itself. And if we've farmed it intelligently, we will be able to extract from that vineyard you know, the best quality fruit that, you know, Mother Nature will give us. He's waxing poetic about Burgundy. More with John Terlato right after this. Raise your glass. We are toasting to Burgundy. Chef Jamie Gwen here with John Terlato as we continue our culinary conversation. I thought it was so interesting in your piece to read about the greatest takeaway from your Burgundian experience was restraint. It is. And and restraint and confidence kind of go hand in hand, right? So if you think about these producers that are crafting amazing wines, wines that I would refer to as moving, right? They're provocative and they're moving. You put them in your mouth and it makes it causes one to think and be moved to some, maybe even an emotion. Mm. Um, what I can tell you is that those winemakers and their families, they have an incredible amount of confidence in what their vineyard will provide them. And then as they move from, you know, harvest into winemaking, they show an incredible amount of restraint in the way that they manage the grapes through the process all the way through to, you know, barrel regimen and bottle aging that really truly focuses and, and places an emphasis on the vineyard. And, and, and restraint is something that is absolutely included across all of those great winemakers. They just are confident enough to let the vineyard show for themselves without engineering it, it's it's it was like a light bulb uh, going off they Quite just incredible. they're confident yeah and they're restrained it was wonderful to read your travel exploration and i think there's something to learn in it for all of us for those of us that uh, you know enjoy uh, sipping and savoring to those that create and and make these beautiful wines like you and your family. And so I love that you shared your story. And I know that my listeners will want to continue to read about your Burgundian experience. Uh, John Terlato writes an article in the current issue of The Clever Root, a national quarterly publication that focuses on ingredients and chefs and ranchers and growers. They are all about fruit, flower, farm, and leaf. And it's a a really wonderful article, so do read it. You can learn more about the Terlato legacy and their family of wines and wineries, uh, more specifically Pinot Noir and Chardonnay made in beautiful style at SanfordWinery.com. John, will you come back and visit again soon, please? Anytime, as long as it's interesting for you and your listeners, I will be happy to share. It always is, and Craig and I look forward to sitting down and toasting with you again soon as well. Likewise. Thank you. John Terlato, always a pleasure. Thank you. As the delicious conversation continues, there is more fabulous food and fine wine in your radio right after this.
delivering the world of food directly to your radio. Chef Jamie Gwen here. Eating well and doing good in our community is our common goal. The Ecology Center in San Juan Capistrano, California, is a nonprofit educational center that engages individuals and families and students in hands-on activities that teach practical environmental solutions to create a healthy and abundant future for all of us. And how do we ensure the future health of our oceans? How can we make our homes healthier to live in? Well, Evan Marks is the founder and executive director of the Ecology Center with a background in permaculture and agroecology, having worked extensively in California, Hawaii, Costa Rica, Peru, Ghana, Nigeria, and beyond. And Evan knows that people have the ability to directly impact the environment through individual change. And he's here to motivate you and I. He's here to share his passion. I'm really glad to welcome you to the show, Evan. Thank you, Jamie. Of Honored course. To be here. Oh, how kind. Thank you. Um, tell us more about your community efforts to better the environment locally and globally. Yeah, I mean, our basic philosophy is that we're all conduits for change, right? So no one does it for us. We all have to participate. And if we want a healthy food system, we want a healthy ocean, we want healthy relationships with our community, then we have to create them. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the context of, of our work was through um, real-life experiences on the ground that I had internationally over six years that saw change-making happening in places like Costa Rica or Mexico or Nigeria or Ghana, and um, I ultimately wanted to bring that back to Orange County as a, as a case study, as a, as a, as a model uh, if it can happen here in Orange County, where ecological literacy isn't the highest, but the possibility is the greatest, then it can happen potentially in a, other communities, if not everyone. I love that term, ecological literacy. Mm. If we up our literacy game, yeah. then we are empowered to the environmental perspective that you speak about and apply it to the way that we live our lives so that we can coexist with a thriving environment, which is really what the Ecology Center in San Juan Cap that you've built is all about. You're passionate about water savings. I know a regenerative food system as well. And I'd like to talk about that. Uh, Define, if you would, a regenerative food system. Well, ultimately, you know, even going back to your comment of, um, of literacy is that we're on this beautiful planet Earth. There's finite resources here, but there is abundance. If we can collaborate and, and 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 organize ourselves appropriately, so if we're talking about regenerative agriculture, status quo of where our food comes from is, is excuse my language, but it's a it's basically a resource mining. Uh, I was going to use um, it was a rape and pillage model, but it's I'll use resource uh, <laughs> extraction model, right? And resources are going out and nothing Nothing's is really coming, coming in, in. Right. and so regenerative ag looks towards how do we regenerate soils that are regenerating economies and communities while nourishing people. Hmm. So it's, it's actually sort of like where everyone wins, where Earth wins, right. where the farmers win, where the consumers win, and, and it just keeps going. So, so uh, that's our vision is that we can nourish ourselves and our community in ways that are beneficial for everyone. You can learn more about what you can do to live your life better to make it possible for us to coexist with a thriving environment for many years to come by going to theecologycenter.org. You'll learn about 
Evan Mark's passion and his team really, I, I will say, doing an extraordinary job in a nonprofit setting to create a healthier tomorrow. And of course, you should follow the Ecology Center and the Ecology Centers where you live. You can find uh, Evan's Daily Dish at, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and more at the Ecology Center with a capital letter for each of the start of the words, theecologycenter.org as well. Evan, thank you so much. I look forward to talking to you soon. Yeah, I hope to see you soon. Thank you, guys. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of gastronomic inspiration. I hope that you'll tune in every Sunday to hear reports and opinions from the farms and the kitchen tables, the bar stools, the wine cellars, the vineyards of the world, and more. I love everything having to do with fabulous food, and you can tune in every Sunday. You can find podcasts and recipes galore at chefjamie.com, and you can follow my daily dish on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at chefjamiegwen. I hope you'll become a friend. I'll leave you with my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of culinary conversation for the hour. An abundance of summer zucchini means grilled vegetables, right? Or zucchini boats with tomato sauce or zucchini ribbon salad. And of course, crispy zucchini chips. Oh yes, I have made crispy zucchini chips in the oven, by the way, and they take about two hours at 225 degrees. But during the summer, when the zucchini is growing like wildfire, that's two hours of heating up the house more than the sun already is. So I resorted to the microwave. And while I'm not a huge microwave advocate, it works really great. But be aware, you need to watch the first batch of your crispy zucchini chips very carefully to determine how long they will take to crisp in your personal microwave. And by the way, it takes about five minutes for a plate of crisps, but I can eat a whole plate of those because you have to layer them in a, you know, in a single layer per se. It takes about 20 minutes working in batches to crisp the slices from a whole zucchini, but it's worth it. They are deliciously addictive, so you should try it. You use a mandolin to thinly and evenly slice the zucchini. You spray a microwave-safe plate with a mist of olive oil from your mister. You lay a single layer of zucchini on the plate without overlapping the slices. Then you mist the top of the zucchini with olive oil and add very little salt because it compounds as the zucchini cooks. You microwave for approximately five minutes until the zucchini is crisp and golden. And then you remove it to a plate, put your next plate in, and you have crispy zucchini chips that are out of this world. I will post pictures and the ingredients and method on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Once again, at Chef Jamie Gwen. I thank you for listening. I hope you have a delicious week and I hope you'll tune in next Sunday for more delectable conversation. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I hope you continue to eat well.